Well, you can keep your Bibles open or turn them open to Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 14, which we'll spend our time together this morning. It's the first time I've prepared a sermon in about five or six months, and Carrie and Jay make it look so easy. It's a lot of work this week, as Carrie got to enjoy the NCAA tournament. I told you I'd throw that in there, buddy. I'll pray for you. That's a phrase we hear a lot, isn't it? We hear that a lot in Christian circles. I mean, just imagine you went to a coffee shop with a brother or sister in the faith. The conversation starts turning to what the Lord's doing in their life. Maybe it turns to confession of sin. Maybe it turns to the hardships that they're facing in their marriage or in parenting. What does that conversation usually end with? I'll pray for you. Sometimes we use that phrase as opportunities to maybe get out of something. A children's worker comes to you and says, we need help at children's camp. I'll pray for you. It's a really good phrase. And it's an appropriate phrase. And I don't want you to... Be sitting here thinking, do I just use that as a cup? No, I'm not wanting you to do that. There's no guilt provoking here. It's just pointing out that we say this a lot. And for most of you, you follow through on it. And if you don't follow through on it, just do what Russ Branham does and pray for the person right there so you don't have a guilt-ridden conscience later. I'll pray for you. The question sometimes isn't so much whether or not we're praying for people. We, most of us, I would say, in here do. But I think the question becomes, what are we praying for? What's the content of our prayer? Now, I don't want you to, again, I don't want you to sit there analyzing. But I want you to think of a couple scenarios. Maybe that person you're getting coffee with actually is talking about how God's working in their life, but they're a recent convert. And they converted from Islam. A recent Muslim, and their, their family has casted them out. They've lost connection and relationship with their family. What are we praying for at that point? The young teenage Christian who's trying to navigate the public school system, trying to navigate high school in general, private school, public school, doesn't matter. And they're recognizing that some of their beliefs, some of their things that they're learning that the Christians believe, they're, they're losing friends over. They're discouraged. What's the content of our prayer then? You can think of, and we'll actually talk about this in a little bit, you can think of our missionaries. Thousands and thousands of miles away from the closest family member. Their church body. Hostile governments. What's the content of our prayer? Paul today is going to paint a picture of the content of his prayer. He goes from why he's praying in the first, five, first nine verses of why he's praying for them. And he, he gives a clear description why he's praying. He's praying for the faith he's heard that they have in Christ Jesus, the love they have for the saints, and the hope they've set up in eternity. On top of that, what's happening with them is also happening in the world. The gospel's spreading. He gives clear insight into why he's praying. But in this passage, he's going to give us clear insight into what he is praying and if you were to, to poll 
everyone in this room, on what you would pray for a young church, young Christian church that just got started in an area that's probably a little hostile to the gospel, what would you say? What would you think that, that Paul would start be praying for them? What would be the content of his prayer? Maybe we'd think of leadership, good, solid Christian leaders in that church. Maybe you'd think finances, to keep things going, to keep the spread of the gospel happening. Maybe you would think of new attendees, new people, new converts, which is good. All those things are good. But what Paul prays for kind of throws us off a little bit. He prays for knowledge. He's praying for them to grow in knowledge. Look at verse 9 with me. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Those three words, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, are going to be peppered all throughout Colossians. You're going to hear them everywhere. But we're going to just focus in on knowledge today. And knowledge, Paul refers to about three or four more times in this letter. One more time in verse 10, which we'll get to in a moment. But also he refers to them, refers to knowledge in chapter 2, 2 through 4, and chapter 3, verse 10. Turn there with me. It's probably just a flip of the page for most of you. He says this in chapter 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge. There's understanding and knowledge. Of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Jump over to chapter 3, verse 10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, after the image of its creator. You see, knowledge is very important to this letter. Knowledge is something that everyone, especially in our day and age, loves. We love gaining knowledge and having knowledge. I mean, there's famous TV shows based off of it. We love gaining knowledge. But Paul is not just talking about a topic. No, it's not what are we gaining knowledge in, it's who. Who is this knowledge centered on? I mean, if you look at those verses again, you see that the knowledge of the mystery reveals Christ. Knowledge and wisdom is all found in Christ. And the knowledge of the new self is being renewed in Christ. And I think this is Paul's point when it comes to knowledge. The knowledge-filled life that he's praying for, for, these, for the Colossian church, is a Christ-filled life. A knowledge-filled life is a Christ-filled filled life. But there is there is a little bit of a what. He does want them to gain knowledge in something. He wants them to gain a knowledge in God's will. And will here, as one commentator points out, has kind of two meanings that Paul will use out through most of his epistles. The will for salvation, salvation through Christ Jesus, and also the will for obedience for how we live. And I think Paul is using both right here. Because this knowledge that is gained of Christ, of knowing Christ, of knowing God's will for them is not merely intellectual. No, it goes somewhere. It does something. It moves. Look at the first half of verse 10 with me. It says this, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. 
We'll stop there. This knowledge that is gained, this knowledge that he's praying they grow in, he's saying it doesn't just stop with intellect. No, it, it moves in your life. It gives you the ability to walk in a manner worthy of who? Of the Lord. Why? As 3.10 kind of pointed out, because it's his. Because your new self is his. You are his, and you are to be becoming more like him and growing in a knowledge of him. This is why a knowledge-filled life is a Christ-filled life. Because our conduct from the knowledge that we're gaining, learning about him, should cause us to move somewhere and move and live in a way that's like him. And ultimately, that is what glorifies him. His followers following and walking like him. And with this knowledge-filled life, Paul's going to point out that there's three clear results he's praying that happens in their life. And the first one he prays for is that this knowledge-filled life results in growth. In growth. Look at verse 10, second half of verse 10 with me. We'll just read all of verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul's prayer is that this young church would continue to grow and be filled with the knowledge of God that results in something, that results in producing fruit. And what kind of fruit? Well, thankfully, Paul answers this in a couple letters before. In Galatians 5, very famous, most of us know it, 5, 22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, Paul, in the first half of this uh, first chapter, last week, Carrie pointed out that Paul was excited and thankful for what was happening not only in their lives, but with the gospel. It was increasing and growing. And that's exactly what Paul wants to see still happening in their lives. He's praying that that continues, not just in the world, but also in their lives. That it happens for them individually, that it happens for them corporately as a body, and that it spreads out into the world. I mean, Sean just kind of prayed about that. Isn't that how the gospel is to be spreading? We constantly, as individuals, reflect on the saving work of Christ. We constantly want, need, should be desiring to know him more. And in result, we, we, we see fruit bearing in our lives, and we bring that to the body together as one body, and we see that affecting each other, and it should spread. It can't stay just in these walls. It can't just stay in our own personal devotional time. It has to go somewhere. And Paul wants to see it continue to increase individually. He wants to see it continue to increase in this church and also to increase in the world. But what happens as the fruit is growing? What happens as this church and the life of the believer keeps growing in this knowledge and it bears fruit? Well, there's another result in here with growth. They grow in knowledge. Knowledge. And again, another commentator pointed out that this knowledge isn't just, it's not just a circular argument he's making. No, it's a spiral effect. The more you know Christ and the more you grow in him and the more you bear fruit, the deeper you know him and the deeper your relationship with him gets. 
when I was working through this, I, I couldn't help but think about how maybe a helpful way to think about this is like YouTube. YouTube and like Pinterest. Now there's some bad Pinterest fails, but we're going to use this in a, as a good example. A couple years ago when we first bought our house, Camille and I wanted to build a faux fireplace mantle right in the center of our uh, living room so it has some flow. And we started looking at Pinterest and Camille had her 50 different pins and then she finally found the one that she really liked. So what did we do? We looked at the plans, we looked at the blueprints, we looked at how they did it. We started gaining some understanding of how they did it and we watched some of their YouTube videos. You can go on YouTube and look up anything you want. And we started seeing how to do it and so we're like, we can do this, we'll give it a try. So what happens? We start framing, and we have these nine-foot ceilings, so we're learning that, oh, you got to take in every inch of the footer there to understand the two-by-fours, how they work. You go, oh, and then you frame in to hold the fireplace, and then you start drywalling, and you learn how hard drywall is, and you learn you don't want to do it when kids are around. And then, and, and then you start mudding, right? And then you use something called, like, corner bead that's even harder to mud. And then you start sanding, and that's a mess. And you start learning all these different things, and then you get finished and you show Carrie Hughes and he's like, well, you messed up there. So, but you take a knowledge that you glean, you take a knowledge, you practice it, and then you learn more. I mean, try changing your brakes around your old grandpa who's a mechanic. He'll let you know how much you don't know. But I think that's what Paul's getting at here a little bit. Is you've got this knowledge of Christ that moves into your everyday life, at least it should. And the more you come to know Christ, the more you bear fruit, and the more you practice out the faith, the more, you know him, you, you, the more you'll know him. I mean, think about those of you who have went through two ways to live, and the first time you tried to proclaim the gospel using two ways to live to an unbeliever. I hope you came to know Christ more. Maybe the first time you were rejected for proclaiming your faith, you came to know him more. I mean, that's what Paul's getting at here, is that the Christian life is a knowledge-filled life, which is a knowledge of Christ that moves. It, it, it must impact your walk. It must impact your life. And the more it does, the more fruit you bear and the more you come to know him. And isn't that kind of cool? I mean, that's kind of cool. You sit and think about it for a second. I mean, this is a cool thing to be praying for, right? I mean, Paul is just praying, I want you to grow more. And it'd be really fun if he stopped there. It'd be a lot of fun. Like, man, Paul's just praying that we keep growing. Who, I mean, as, 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 if you're taking your faith serious, who, who doesn't want to grow more? But Paul recognizes there's more to pray for here than just simply growth, though growth is powerful and good. He prays for another result to keep happening. Look at verse 11 with me. He says this, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. We'll get to joy in a moment. The second result Paul wants to see from this knowledge-filled life is power. But power for what? I mean, a lot of us would like power, right? I mean, power in our work, power in our home life. Man, if, the kid, if there was just more power. 
power in our finances? I mean, power sounds like a really good thing, especially if it's coming from God's glorious might. But Paul doesn't go quite as flashy, does he? He says, patience and endurance. Why? Why that? Well, I think Paul either is already aware of something this church is going through or he's preparing them for something they're going to be going through. This church is going to be navigating a lot of false teachings, some coming from the Jewish tradition, some coming from a Gnostic tradition. They're going to be navigating a lot of that. And they're going to be patient with each other and endure with each other, but also be patient and endure with all the questions they might have as they're just a young church trying to figure this out. But I don't think it just has to do with teaching, though that's something we all have to be navigating and endure with each other as we're coming to know Christ more. But I also think Paul recognizes that life can be really hard and it hits hard. And to endure it and have patience in it, that power has to come from something beyond ourselves. And as I was preparing this, I I couldn't help but think of some people that we all might know very well who might really be, this part of the prayer might really resonate with them. And that's a lot of our missionaries. I mean, you think about our missionaries for a moment. I have the blessing to be on staff and to hear Jay give us updates and being on elders and giving us updates about what's going on in their lives and getting to see. And I just got actually a true blessing to talk to a family a couple days ago for about an hour and a half. I won't say who they are right now. Um, But I got to talk to them and, and got to hear all that God's working on in their hearts, but also how really, really hard it is right now. They've got, they're, 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 they're trying to get vocational opportunities that the powers that be are not allowing them to have. They're, they're, they're trying to build relationships with people in a community that's chronically sick. And they are, to sum it up, they're, they're just discouraged. Talk about people who need the mighty power of God for endurance and patience in the midst of gospel proclamation. I mean, we, we, we get to hear it quite a bit. Some of you are aware of some of the situations that some, a lot of our missionaries are going through. This is a part of the prayer that they would probably greatly resonate with. Pray that. Pray that for us. But it's not just missionaries. I mean, if any of you have lost a family member, I mean, two years ago, I lost my best friend and my dad within a, month's, within a month span from each other. And I wish I was pressing in to the mighty power of God for endurance. I was just trying to get through it. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've gotten a diagnosis. Maybe your family is falling apart. You're trying to navigate all that. Life hits, doesn't it? Where do you find the power for endurance outside of the glorious might of God? That's what a knowledge-filled life, which is a Christ-filled life, can produce. And that's what Paul prays for. But there's a third thing that it produces, which balances that out so well. Because not only does this knowledge-filled life that he's praying for produce growth and produce power for endurance, patience, but it also produces a joyful thanksgiving. 
This is the third result of a knowledge-filled life. Read uh, verses 12 through 14 with me, starting with joy. With joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, I... I put joy with there, and in, in, in some of your English translations, and they can, they're helpful, but some of you might see a semicolon there, you might see a comma, and it looks like it's probably with patience and endurance. And to be honest with you, I didn't quite know what to do with it. So I just defaulted what is wise here and just went with what Kent Hughes says in his book. So Kent actually does keep it with, keeps joy with thanksgiving. And I think that is a helpful way. Now, you can interpret it with endurance. James teaches a lot of that. There's a lot of that throughout Scripture. But I think right here, what we're about to get to, it should produce a very joyful thanksgiving. And thanksgiving for Paul is a massive deal, not only in this letter, but throughout all of his letters. Paul uses the word thanksgiving 15 times throughout all of his letters. Three times here in Colossians, tied for first with 1 Thessalonians, for three times using it. But he uses it in his introductions. He uses it in his prayers. He uses it in his exhortations. He uses it in his greeting, in, in saying goodbye, in his final greetings. Thanksgiving is a huge deal to Paul. And why? Why is Paul so thankful? I mean, a lot of you know his stories. He's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked. What is this guy thankful for? Well, I think our text today in the second half, he gives us why he's thankful, but also he gives us why the church in Colossians, and as well as us, we should be thankful. And the first reason Paul says that we should be thankful is because the Father has qualified us. Again, look at verse 12 with me. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We are to be thankful because the Father has done something in our behalf we could never do. All the, the rest of this section today is all about being thankful for what the Father has done. And this language right here, this inheritance language, this is Old Testament kind of language. It's Old Testament of what Israel was to receive. They were to receive a land in which they would worship God in and they would be protected to just worship Him. We know kind of how that story goes. But now he says it's not just for the Jews. It's for you Gentiles. It's for you Spokenites. It's for you because the Father has brought you into it. Not anything you've done, not anything you were able to muster up, but he's brought you into it. And where is this land? What is this? Well, it's the second thing he's brought us into, and it's his son's kingdom. Look at verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Again, do you see the theme? This is all done by the Father. He is the one who brings us out of darkness. Because we honestly, naturally don't go there. Without the Father doing this, we don't want to come out of darkness. John, uh, first, John 1, verse 9 through uh, 14, 13 says this. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see who did that? God did that. Because our will would never muster it up. It would never do enough. Our hearts are naturally inclined to stay in the dark. But God in his grace and his love and his mercy wouldn't allow us to stay there. So where did he take those who heard his voice, who received his message? He took them out of the domain of darkness, being under its authority, and into his son's kingdom under his authority. To the kingdom of his beloved son. And how did he do this? How was this accomplished? Well, it was accomplished through the redeeming and forgiving of sins. That's the third thing to be thankful for. Look at verse 14. To the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And how did he do that? He did it through the cross. This is why I had John 10 read this morning. This is what the good shepherd was sent to do, to bring God's sheep to him. I mean, did you catch what Jesus said at the very end of that? Let's go back. I'll just go back and read it for you. You can turn there if you'd like. John 10, 14 through 18 says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. What did the father charge him to do? To lay down his life for the sheep. To enter them into the sheepfold. To bring them into his kingdom. To bring salvation into the world. The father sent the son to do this miraculous thing. To redeem sinners. What else is there to be thankful for? The home? Yeah, be thankful for that. That's good. What, what about for the homeless Christian? For the children? What if you don't have children? What if you lose them? What is there to be thankful for? For the job? What happens when that's gone? What is the only stable thing to be thankful for? It's forgiveness, the redemption, the forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Christ Jesus. When I was at Moody Bible Institute, we had a chapel where the speaker was talking about this theme of thankfulness. And he encouraged us to turn to our neighbors next to us and say, hey, talk about what you're thankful for that God's done for you. And someone brought up, to be honest, guys, I'm actually really thinking about how I'm thankful for salvation. And we all kind of rolled our eyes. Because we had become numb to it. We had become numb 
that the God of the universe sent his son who was on his throne, who knew riches, came down to us and redeemed us and forgave us. We had become numb to that. Are we numb to that? When, when, when life gets hard around us and the bitterness sets in, are we numb to the fact that as he said, this is why he's praying, there's a hope in eternity? We forget what the Father has done for us through Christ. My friends, a knowledge-filled life is a Christ-filled life that produces growth, power, and joyful thankfulness because of the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's the only way we can have this knowledge. The only way we can have it is because Christ Jesus knew that knowledge. He is that knowledge. He lived out that walk perfectly because it's his walk. He was the one who had the power to endure with patience all the way to the cross. On our behalf. That's what we're to be thankful for. That's where the power comes from. That's where the growth comes from. Is that happening in our lives? I think there's two clear applications, but there's probably more, and I hope the Spirit's leading that way in your life. But the first one I think is this prayer is a mirror for us to look at our hearts Look and go, are we pursuing this knowledge? This knowledge isn't just for the intellect. It's not for the scholar, just for the scholar. It's for the pastor as much as it is for the stay-at-home mom. It's for the professor as much as it is the plumber. It's for the five-year-old who accepts Jesus Christ at their parents' dinner table and as much as it is for the 99-year-old who's patiently waiting to go home. This knowledge is for all who confess in Christ Jesus. I think the second way, it's kind of alluded to at the beginning, this should impact our prayer life. How are we praying for our brothers and sisters? Paul gives us a great template here of the content of it. You want to see your friend's marriage impacted, your brother and sister's marriage impacted by the gospel? This prayer covers that. You want to see your teenager come to know and love God more and have a devotional life and, and live a life that's wanting to glorify him? Hello? This is the beauty of this prayer. It impacts our lives. And should be prayed for each other regularly. But for some of you here today... You might be thinking, hey, I'm not a Christian. And this seems to have nothing to do with me. To some extent, you, you're kind of right. This was written to Christians, and it's preserved for Christians. This is, he's speaking to Christians. But I hope you caught something there. That there are still some sheep that he's going after. Who he's paved the way for you to enter into that sheepfold. And it said something in John 10 about hearing his voice. You might go, well, I'm not hearing any voice. I would encourage you to reconsider that. 
because you're hearing his word right now and he's telling you that the God of the universe has done everything for you. If you can recognize that this world is sinful, that we're sinful, that we rejected a God who created us out of his love, then he's also telling you that he's redeemed you out of his love. Because this prayer actually is for you. It's a reminder that you need the Father to send his Son to redeem you. And I would encourage you to actually press into that knowledge of Christ. Because you'll probably find out that a knowledge-filled life is a Christ-filled life. Let's pray. Father, what else is there to thank you for other than the saving work of Jesus Christ? Thank you for your word. We thank you for this prayer. Lord, may our knowledge of you result in a life that's lived in glory of you, produces fruit to know you more. Lord, give us that glorious mind power to endure life so we can continue to know you more. Thank you for Christ Jesus. Amen.